Well, good morning. We are so thankful to have you joining us here once again for worship. Uh, no, my name is not Pee Wee Herman. I am actually Pastor Ryan Mallon, a pastor of Church of the Atonement. I uh, decided to break out the bow tie and uh, begin enjoying some of this warmer weather that we are experiencing on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend. If this is your first time gathering with us uh, this morning for worship, we would like to welcome you. We're so grateful that you are joining this body, uh, even though we're not together in one place. Uh, hopefully, you will have opportunities to see the comments and the love that we have in our congregation and feel like you are welcome to be a part of this church family as well. If it's your first time, we'd love to know uh, if you could leave a comment in Facebook or send us an email at info at We'd love to know how we can connect with you and if there are any ways that we can be praying with you. Also, we send out weekly emails about worship and about what's going on in the life of our church. And so if you would like to be uh, kept in the loop of those emails, please uh, contact us at info at atonementlife.org. We would love to add you to our email list to make sure that you are uh, being kept up to date in all the latest communications that will be coming out, especially uh, as we anticipate uh, more freedoms in the time of reopening in our nation. Um, it is Memorial Day weekend, and so I do want to just acknowledge the fact that this is a weekend that's very special in the life of our country, as there are many uh, families who have had servicemen and women who have given their lives and lost their lives for the sake of preserving freedom, both for this country and for the sake of other countries. And so I do want to give an encouragement to us to remember those families in our prayers, to remember the great sacrifice that uh, people have given, and um, to take time to be thankful for the freedoms that we have in this country to uh, practice religion and worship the living God in the way that we uh, have freedom to do. And so in light of that, would you please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for this special time of worship. Father, though right now so many of our freedoms seem to be a shadow of what they once were, in light of all the restrictions happening in our country, we thank you that it does not inhibit our worship. We pray, Father, for your Spirit's help. Help us to think deeply about the things that you call us to do. Help us to ponder deeply the things that you call us to be. Help us to appreciate deeply the things that you have done for us. We need your Spirit's help to do this. We pray, Father, that you would quiet all anxieties and distractions so that we might commune with you, that we might sing your praises and be reminded of your grace and respond to your word with great thanksgiving and uh, worship in how we live. We ask all this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. morning. Hear the call to worship from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let us do just that as we sing together, holy, holy, holy.
to a time of confession. Would you bow with me as we go before the almighty, eternal, and holy God? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your mercy to wandering people, to wayward children, to people like us who often hand over our hearts to foolishness. We've been disobedient. We, we have rejected the light of Christ even this very week. Selfishness has sadly been our drug of choice, along with pride, bitterness, and laziness. We have not loved rightly. We have been angered too quickly prayer has been neglected. 
Through Jesus Christ, Father. Through Jesus Christ, we ask mercy. We ask forgiveness. Cleanse our hearts afresh. Holy Spirit, make us more like our Lord, our Savior, and our brother. Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus is our hope for this life and for the life to come. We confess this morning that there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Believers, those trusting in Jesus, Jesus paid the debt for all of your sin against God once and for all. In Christ, you have redemption through Christ's blood the forgiveness of your trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which God loved us, even when you and I, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, God made us alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank God for forgiving grace. We thank you for um, your uh, continuing to give and sow into the Lord's ministry. We pray that now you take a moment and either give online or prepare for mailing to sow into God's kingdom. And now let's continue in worship as we meditate on the Garden Song.
goodness and love toward us. Um, how amazing is his grace. We are at the time in our service, which is for the children's sermon. And uh, today, in our passage in the big message, we are going to be looking once again at the letter that the apostle Peter wrote. Now, you might remember, kids, that Peter is the one that walked on water to go meet Jesus out in the Sea of Galilee in the midst of all the storm and the waves. Well, that's the same Peter, and he's writing to some believers, followers of Jesus, who are far, far away, and uh, he wrote to encourage them. And one of the things that we're going to see in our big message today is that he writes to them, and he says these words, and if you call on him as father. Now, he's referring to God. So if they call on God as father, that's kind of a an interesting phrase. What does it mean to call on God as Father? Does that mean you pick up the telephone and you dial God's phone number and you call on him and say, Dad, could you please send me money? Does it mean that you uh, raise your, your hand, God's got his hand raised, and you call on him like a teacher calls on you for a correct answer? You, uh, no, none of those things are what Peter's talking about. What's he talking about? What Peter is talking about is if you have a special relationship with God, one that's like the relationship between a father and a child. Peter is wanting these believers to think about the fact that if they really have God as their father, then they should live in certain ways. You might remember even a little prayer that Peter was taught by Jesus. Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples and to many others who were listening. Jesus was teaching them how to pray. And he said, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, or who is in heaven, holy is your name. That's how the prayer begins. And this was an amazing thing for Jesus to be saying. Because for a long time when people prayed, they would never address God as Father. But Jesus, as God's Son, taught his disciples and the many who were listening that God cares for his people and loves for his people just like 
they are his own children. And so God's children should obey and listen to their father, not just so they don't get in trouble, but so that they would show their love for their heavenly father in the way that they live. Because they know their father cares for them and loves them and protects them. And that's what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to help these believers understand the special relationship that they have if they call on him as father. Let's pray. We do call on you as father and ask that you would help us to learn what it means to have this special relationship with you, God. We thank you for the many ways in which you care for us. We thank you for this message of reminding us of who we are as your children and how we should be living. We pray that you would help this message to sink into our hearts. We would not take it for granted that we call on you as Father, that we would just love it, cherish it, and treat it as a very special thing that it is. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to be adjusting the sound. Hopefully you can hear me. Um, as we uh, turn our attention back to Peter's letter to these disciples, these followers of Christ that are living in uh, the province of Turkey, we know that Peter was writing to encourage them. And we started to see how, beginning last week, how Peter was shifting from all this information. He was reaffirming their identity of who they were as God's cherished children. And he was reaffirming all the ways in which God was working and caring for them and securing and assuring their salvation. And now he shifts in his letter to encourage them that if that, all that is true, then this is how they should be living. And last week we saw that they should be living with their hearts set on the right things. And in order to do that, they need to have the right mindset, that they need to be sober-minded and prepared for action. And so this week we're going to be seeing that living out that hope should express itself in being holy. And I think one of the best ways to understand holiness is to think of it as a family resemblance. So I titled this message, You're Just Like Your Father, or Just Like Your Father. That might be a phrase that you're familiar with. Uh, it's a phrase that I heard growing up, and it usually was not a, a term of endearment or a phrase that was used as an encouragement. Usually it was a phrase used by my mother and now used by my wife towards my own sons to highlight some character flaws, <laughs> some things that uh, maybe the, the mother or the wife finds a little bit irritating. But you can think of some circumstances in our lives when um, being just like your father is a good thing. Oftentimes, you'll hear people appeal to the character of their parents um, in family-run businesses whenever a business passes from one generation to the next. So if there was a, a, a family member, a father figure who started a business and he had great integrity and he really cared for his customers and he was trustworthy and honest, well, oftentimes, when it's, that business is passed down to the next generation, people will appeal to that character and try to demonstrate the ways in which they are continuing to resemble the same character of their father in the business, in the way that the business is run. Another way that we can kind of see this family resemblance passed down is uh, I've seen it happen 
during the times of funerals, actually. So not only do you get to see the display of pictures um, of the deceased, those loved ones who have passed away, there's often a lot of memories that are being shared um, in visual form, and you can see some of the physical characteristics that have been passed down from mother or father to their children. But the other thing that's interesting is I love to ask the question in times of, of getting to know the family and getting to know more about uh, the loved one that passed away. I love to ask the question, what are some things that you've learned from your parents? What are some of the ways that they have really impacted your life? And what is just a beautiful thing in those moments is to hear them describe a quality that they saw lived out in the character of their parents. And where it becomes really beautiful is when I, as a pastor, knowing these people, can see how that trait has impacted them and become one of the family traits. It's been a, become a characteristic uh, behavior that has been passed down. That there is integrity uh, that has been passed down in a legacy from this generation to the next. And so, you know, not only do, is there a physical resemblance that you can see in folks, but it's a great time to take stock of the true impact and character that has been passed down. And that's what Peter is talking about in this section that we're about to get into. As we enter into this next section of Peter's letter, this is the case he's making, that since believers are God's cherished children, then they should live like him. They should embrace the family values. They should embrace the family resemblance, and they should seek to exhibit the same character of God in their own conduct. So let's get into our passage this morning, beginning in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're actually going to cover eight verses, so hold on tight. Listen now to God's word preserved for us in Peter's letter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. It's good for us to remember that in verse 13, Peter had told them that they need to have their minds prepared for action and to be sober-minded with hopeful hearts set on this future grace that would come when Jesus returns. And he's reinforcing now in verse 14 their status as God's children, saying that they should live as obedient children, he begins with a word of warning, warning them of something that could be a threat to their holiness. Right as Peter begins to exhort his readers to be holy and to embrace the family resemblance, 
he begins by saying, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here, once again, we see Peter revisit the idea of how our hearts are often influenced by our thoughts. He writes to them about their former ignorance, by which Peter is speaking of the time before they knew God, before they knew of Christ and what Christ had done for them, before they knew the truth of the gospel. What Peter's saying is, before all of that, you lived in ignorance. And so, as ignorant people do, they follow what they know. And what did they know? They knew what their hearts desired. They knew the passions that they had been brought up in, in the society that had shaped and formed them. In this uh, one verse that we have, in verse 13, you know, Peter talks about that they should have their hearts set on this new hope one that's informed by all this knowledge of what God has done for them. And therefore, their hope, which is an emotion, it, it should be a passion that exhibits itself in hopeful living. It's driven by their identity as God's children. And so here we see Peter is warning that they should not regress into old ways of thinking and therefore old ways of living. He's, he's telling them to be guarded against those old patterns and those old passions. He revisits this idea in verse 18, as we saw when we read, when he reminds them that they were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. What we see here in these two statements is that Peter is addressing the great threat to holiness that exists in the life of believers. Peter gives these two statements reminding them that what threatens their holiness is the patterning of their own hearts. It's giving in to old passions from a former time. Before God, people called, before God called these people, excuse me, to become his children, they lived in ignorance and they followed old family traditions. So they lived in ways that conformed to the values and desires of their own hearts. We could probably take some guesses as to what that might have looked like. What are the things that their hearts may have treasured as Roman citizens, people living in these Roman provinces in the regions of Turkey. Well, probably many of the same things that our hearts have been set on before God became dear and precious to us. So they may have treasured things like money and valued money. They may have treasured things like power. They may be even had a, a treasuring of some good things, like wanting some respect or acceptance Maybe they even had a, a great value placed upon their family or the security of knowing where their food was coming from. Those are comforts that people place a lot of value in. We place a lot of value in those comforts even today. And surely believers had comfort from knowing that those things were established in their life. But now the reality has changed. God has revealed himself to them. He has revealed that he is the thing that their heart treasures and the thing that they should value. He should be their greatest love. And so there will always be this temptation that they might allow some of these former passions to grow too great in their hearts once again. They may allow these former ways to be ways that they practice and return to when hardships hit, it's important for us to consider what happens in our lives. 
that we might express a certain feeling and, and love towards God, but whenever we start to lose earthly comforts, sometimes our love for God can be called into question. Sometimes the way that we act and respond to hardship reveals how great of a love we had on other things. And so when hardships hit, the threat level rises. When these believers begin losing the comforts as Peter knows they are, it's very easy that they could forget who their father is and what he has done to make them his children. It's very easy that they could forget what family they belong to. And so Peter calls them to holiness. He says, do not be conformed to your former passions, but be holy. And so that's the second thing we see Peter deliver here is a call to holiness. He tells them to be holy as the one who called them is holy. Now this word holy, this is a word that we often hear. We often sing. We sung it this morning. Um, we will use it in prayers. And so we often hear this word. We often sing it, but we rarely define it. And it's important that we understand what it means to be holy as God is holy. I mean, if that's what Peter is calling us to, we need to understand the meaning of this word. So what does it mean to be holy? Well, when the Bible talks about God being holy, it's really a, a very helpful word that summarizes a very complex idea. When the Bible talks about God being holy, it's a word used to summarize God's flawless nature. It's a word that speaks of God's perfection. God is perfect not only in the purity of his character, but also in the completeness of his character. He is infinite in his perfection. And so whenever the Bible is describing God's holiness, it's describing often that infinite measure of all those things about God that make him so wonderful. So we think of that great hymn that we sang earlier in our worship this morning, Holy, holy, holy. And the reason I think we love this hymn so much is because it celebrates God's uniqueness and perfection. It celebrates all those ways in which he is unique and perfect and wonderful to his people. The fact that God is perfect and complete means that his, his qualities are infinite. So let's unpack that a little bit. It means that he is infinite in love, infinite in compassion. He's infinite in goodness and righteousness and justice. Those, just to name a few, to think about these qualities that we see in God, these attributes. This means that he doesn't have flaws in those qualities or incompleteness to them. When God loves, he loves perfectly. When he has compassion, he does it perfectly. When he acts in goodness, he does it perfectly. And when he exacts justice and judges, he does it perfectly. It's not as if there's some sort of external measure by which we're comparing God. Does he match up to all these attributes? What scripture reveals is he is the origin of these characters, these characteristics, these attributes. That God is the definition. He is so unique and perfect and infinite that he is the measure from which we draw our definitions of what these things are. So when we talk about love, we look to what love is in God. When we talk about goodness and righteousness and justice, we look to God as the measure of those things. Now that last example of justice, that is a quality of God's holiness 
that is cause not only to rejoice, knowing that God will bring justice to every injustice done against him and his people, but it's also one that makes God's holiness terrifying and dangerous. It can be helpful, I think, to think of God's holiness uh, using the imagery of, of the sun. You know, the sun is a wonderful thing, and it's wonderful in that it brings warmth and light, and that light is used to bring life and flourishing in our world. But too much exposure to the sun, or getting too close to the intensity of the sun, is dangerous. The same thing that brings blessing at a distance is too intense if it's left unfiltered. And it's helpful, I think, to think about God's holiness in that way. The same qualities that make God wonderful are of such purity and brilliance that as we do not measure up to that standard, anything that pales in comparison cannot remain in his presence. God's holiness is what made him inapproachable to Moses whenever God spoke to him out of the burning bush. It's why God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock whenever he was revealing his glory to Moses. God's holiness is what Moses tried to protect the people of Israel from constantly. God's holiness is what Isaiah suddenly realized in his vision in Isaiah 6 of the throne room of God, fearing that he would be consumed and destroyed by God's utter perfection. And so our holiness is always compared to God's. Do we exhibit the same qualities that God exhibits? Now, how would God interact with his people? If he is so holy, how are we ever to interact with him? Well, the scripture tells us that he makes his people holy. He makes people holy, and he calls them to live holy lives. This is the story of God's people Israel. Israel began with one man being called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, his name was Abraham, and he was called out to be holy, that God would build a nation of people from Abraham. Abraham's descendants eventually were called out of Egypt, ransomed from their slavery to become God's holy nation, a people that would display all the attributes of God in the way that they lived. Now, the book of Leviticus is not a book that we often spend time in, in our personal devotional time and quiet time with the Lord. Uh, it's not one that people usually post up on Facebook or print on coffee cups, nor do we sing about it a lot in, uh, in songs of worship, but it's a very important part of the Bible, especially when we're trying to understand holiness. It outlines in great detail the many ways that God's people, Israel, were to display the holiness of God in the way that they live. And so if you read through Leviticus, you'll see that there are moral laws which told them how they should be living. These character ways, uh, um, attributes of character that they are supposed to be embodying and the rules that help to curb uh, behavior in that direction. We also see there are judicial laws that were there to bring justice for when the moral laws were broken, that it's serious whenever the moral law is broken and restitution needs to be made. Justice needs to be brought. That's one aspect of God's holiness. As well, there were ceremonial laws which were given for the practice of restoration and consecration so that God's people could be restored and remain near his presence. So in the book of Leviticus, God instructs Israel repeatedly to be holy and to consecrate themselves. So we hear things like this. 
Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. All of these uh, verses help to illustrate this principle that even in the Old Testament, as we see here in Peter's letter, God called his people to consecrate themselves and be holy. That is, they were to take steps to remove corruption from their bodies. It meant acknowledging their imperfections, seeking forgiveness, and endeavoring to obey the ways of the Lord, the laws that he had given to them so that they could be nearer and remain nearer to God's presence. Being holy was about patterning their heart after the heart of God. So God's people were to be holy, not on the same level as God, but to display holiness in the same kind. That is, to the best of their ability, they should endeavor to live uh, in the likeness of God. Now, it's important for us to notice here that both in the Old Testament as well as in Peter's letter, Scripture is so careful in how it orders this requirement of holy living. That being holy is required after God makes Israel his people. It's after he rescues them from their bondage to Egypt. And after he promises to give them an inheritance of a wonderful land where he will dwell with them. It's after all of that work that God does that he calls them to therefore be holy. So what we can see here is that one is to be holy because they are God's child, not that they should be holy in order to become God's child. That's what Peter's point is in this passage, just like the Old Testament people of God. New Testament believers have received a great blessing. God has made them his children, causing them to be born again, keeping them for this wonderful inheritance which is being guarded for them. And so in light of all that good news, these New Testament believers also should try to bear his image. They should be marked with the family resemblance. They should try to display his legacy and glory in their lives. They need to be holy as he is holy, having hearts that are shaped after his. The third thing that Peter offers to us in this portion of his letter is he, su he supplies a corrective for holiness. There are, in the last half of this passage that we read this morning, a great encouragement uh, that Peter offers by providing two sobering thoughts. He reminds them of two facts, which I think tie into that idea of being sober-minded. Two um, mindsets, two, two ideas that God's people should have their minds set on, that they shouldn't forget so that they would live uh, and pursue holiness versus falling into that threat of following their former passions. The first one is this. He reminds them that their father is an impartial judge. Peter reminds them that the one they call on as father is the same one who judges each one according to their deeds impartially. It's important for these believers to remember who their father really is. The one that they seek help from, the one that they seek 
protection and care and blessing, he's also the one who judges impartially. This means that God does not cut slack based on ethnicity or socioeconomic status or vocation or any other superficial category that we might be tempted to uh, place a false confidence in. Um, we might begin to look at some of those categories and think, well, because I do this or because I am this, there's a loophole for me. But Peter's intention in mentioning this sobering fact is that our hearts and the unholiness that we uh, exhibit in our conduct will not be overlooked. Our Father, even though he's our Father forever, judges our conduct. God cuts to the chase and he judges each one according to their deeds. Now, I know what you might be thinking. We just sang a lot of songs that talked about the fact that God judges us not based on our good works, but on Christ's righteousness. I mean, doesn't that, uh, isn't that what is taught in the scriptures? That we are judged based on uh, Jesus's righteousness and we are considered family because of what Jesus has done? What about all the verses that speak to that? And I want to say, yes, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. We stand before God and approach his throne not based on our righteousness, but because Jesus was righteous for us. In fact, Peter calls attention to that fact later in this verse. He says, since our father judges impartially, we should conduct ourselves with fear in this season of life, which he refers to as the time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways not with imperishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter knows exactly what has purchased uh, our holiness. He knows the cost of our holiness. And so he links the thought of our father being an impartial judge with this second sobering thought. That is, that we should remember the cost of holiness. He reminds them of the precious and eternal investment that God has made in his people to make them holy. Something that was planned before the foundation of the world, but made manifest, made visible and real in this time for their sake. Christ's death and resurrection was that precious payment that ransomed them from those old ways. Well, that's true. If that's true, what does it mean that they should be living in fear? It's kind of weird. We have this direction that they should conduct themselves with fear in their exile. And it's sandwiched between these, do, these two pieces of good news that they call on God as father and that they have been ransomed from feudal ways through the blood of Christ. So what is Peter suggesting here? Why is he telling them to conduct themselves with fear? I think what Peter is saying is that they, if they really know all that God has done, they really know how much he protects them and works for their good and promises an inheritance. And if they really understand the cost of their holiness, what it required for Christ to go to the cross and to be raised again in order to call them out and free them from their old ways so that they may be holy and with God. If they really understand that, then they should have a fear for the way that they live. I think what Peter is suggesting is that if you really claim to know God as your father and really claim to know what it costs to make you holy, then it should be shown in the way that you live. Therefore, we should be fearing 
a time where we might ever live as if we forgot those realities. If we truly believe we're God's children, we should be afraid of ever living like we seem to belong to another family. If we're truly understanding the precious cost that was paid to ransom us for holy living, then we should be afraid of ever living in a way that makes that investment look cheap. I think what Peter is saying is that we should fear ever living in a way that is other than being an obedient child. There's something that I think Peter is, is scratching at here, something that he's trying to point to. I think what he's trying to help people understand, these believers and us, is that there's more to being an obedient child than just following the rules. There's more to, to displaying the character of obedience than simply following the letter of the law. The things that God does and the things that he calls us to do must flow from a heart that is shaped after his own heart. And obedience should do likewise. Holiness is about having a family resemblance, not just in the outward actions that we participate in, but something that flows from the inward heart. These realities mean that we should desire God's holiness to increase in our lives. And we should fear ever thinking that we are what we are, and that's all we are going to be. Settling for just having this much holiness in our life. And not trying to endeavor to look more and more like our Father in heaven. Like a father who adopts children from a very bad situation, God has lavished his love upon a people that he has chosen. But there's nothing more offensive than when a child takes all of a father's generosity and love and intends to demonstrate no love or appreciation in return. Takes it for granted. Peter's warning people, if you call on him as father, you should be afraid if there would ever be a time where in your life it doesn't look like that's true. The same morning that Peter writes to believers, God has preserved as a word for us. As we try to live holy lives in the midst of an unholy world, in this time of exile, there's a real danger that we would forget who our Father is. It's very easy to become discouraged by hardships and to begin to look to former passions to self-medicate and to ease the pain. It's very easy to become distracted by the ways of the world and to be enticed and set our hearts upon things to please ourselves other than pleasing our Father. There's a real danger also, I think, and this is what Peter gets to in that corrective formula with those sobering thoughts, in taking for granted all the wonderful saving work that God has done on our behalf. A danger in thinking that God's holiness is only something that brings us blessing and can never be dangerous to us. God's holiness is not something that his people should be taking for granted. As God's children, we need to conduct ourselves in fear. We should be afraid of ever living in a way that resembles that we have another father, that there's some other influence or love that we have greater than our father in heaven. We should be afraid of living in ways that make the cost of our holiness look cheap and that it was something easily purchased. We should be afraid of trusting too much in our own goodness evaluating our own self based on how we think we're doing in the realm of being holy. We should be afraid 
of living in ways that appear to be holy on the outside, but in fact flow from a heart that is poisoned with former passions. Holiness is more than rule following. It's about having a heart shaped after our Father's heart. And to support that message, I think what Peter's drawing from is a similar message preached by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have that famous passage where Jesus gives the Beatitudes and he says that blessed are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. Jesus declares that he has come to not erase the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, to demonstrate and bring righteousness into this world. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to remember, as Jesus gives these words to these people on the hillside, the scribes and the Pharisees are the religious elite. Those are the people who are taking great pride in the ways that they hold up the letter of the law. And Jesus says in this one phrase, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never make it into heaven. You'll never receive that inheritance. How can Jesus say that? Well, he goes on to demonstrate what he means by this. He takes all of these scenarios that the law speaks to, all these characters that uh, are character living that the the law seeks to curb and to to, uh, influence, to guide people into holy living. And he says, you've heard it said, and he he lists the law out. You've heard it said, what it says about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation against enemies. You've heard it said in all these ways. But I say to you, Jesus with each subject takes the law and he raises the bar of what it means to be holy. He outlines holiness on another level. Holiness that goes beyond the letter of the law and embraces the heart of it. What Jesus is demonstrating is that holy living doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't break the law per the letter, but it means that you're living in a way that tries to honor the Father who has called you. Holiness flows out of a true knowledge of having God as your Father. Jesus concludes this part of his sermon with verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect the same message that Peter is calling believers to in this epistle. Even in the midst of the hardship that they're facing, God has paid an incredible price to make them holy. God's desire is not to establish a household of rule followers, but to have a family of children that resembles his very nature. In light of this reality, in light of the fact that our Father judges impartially, we should conduct our lives with great care. We should be very careful in the way that we live. We should be afraid of ever looking like he's not our father. We should be afraid of trying to prove our earnestness in our heart by showing that we didn't uh, break one of the rules rather than showing the intentions of our heart. We are to be perfect. And as Jesus reminds us, we are to seek God's perfection in our lives. We should aspire progress in the ways we demonstrate that we're a part of the family, not just with the appearance and how we act, but with the integrity which uh, influences our behavior. 
It's important to see that obedience is not just about rule following. We think about holiness, and a lot of times we think about the moral straitjacket, but really, holiness flows from having a heart that is shaped after the Father's. This is how believers are to live, even in the midst, and especially in the midst, of hardship. So it is a good encouragement for us to reflect on this Lord's Day and to think about how we need to be careful. Are there ways in which we are living we should be much more fearful about the ways that we live. We should be endeavoring to be just like our Father so that we would be people known as God's people, displaying his character in this world, and that when people look to us and see the way that we live, they say they look just like their Father. Let's pray. Father, we beg your forgiveness for times where we might think about your holiness too lightly, times where we might uh, give up on the call to be holy because of just the pervasiveness of the corruption in our hearts. Lord, you call us to be holy, and you've paid a great cost to make us holy, and you judge how we live even in this time as your children. And so, Father, we ask for your help. Help us to be sober-minded. Help us to remember that you judge impartially. Help us not to rely upon outward examples of righteousness, but to seek um, our hearts to be shaped and patterned after your heart, inviting your holiness to display itself even in the most deadened and terrible aspects of our lives. We need your life. We need your holiness to bring life into us. We want to be children that carry the family resemblance. Help us to live in that way this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, merciful Lord, we ask you for mercy. Dear Father, pour out your mercy on the world, in every country, on every state, on every city, on every man, woman, boy, and girl. We need the mercy, O oh God, of your deliverance. Father, hear our concerns this morning. Hear the aches of our souls. Look upon us and come to our rescue. We pray for those dealing with illness. We pray for those dealing with floods and the loss of their homes. We pray for those who are unemployed at this time. We pray for those struggling to make ends meet. We pray for those who are lonely this day, for those who are wrestling with grief, the loss of loved ones or other situations. We pray for families who are discouraged and anxious today. We pray for families experiencing major disagreement in the house. Lord, today we, this being Memorial Day weekend, we want to pray for all those, God, who currently serve in our military and all branches, and we thank you for them. And we do pray and thank you. Well, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for those who have served 
given their lives for the sake of liberty in this country. Father, today we lift up our missionaries, asking you to enrich their hearts, encourage their labors, enable them to engage others, pointing them to Jesus. We pray for the churches of Jesus Christ all over the world. The powers of darkness want the church to be silent. They want us to fade away. Empower your churches, O God. Equip them to be the light of the world. Work in the churches to truly belong to Jesus in this world. The fields are ripe and ready for harvest, but the churches need to follow King Jesus, for he came to save sinners. We pray, O oh God, for the leaders of our city, our state, and our country. They need wisdom. They need wisdom. O oh Lord, grant them wisdom. We thank you for healing those who have been ill among us. Thank you for sparing the life of our sister, Vicki Hasuna, this past week. We pray, O oh God, you continue to strengthen her. We thank you, Lord, for the life of Ravi Zacharias, who you called into eternity on this past Tuesday. And we pray your comfort on his family, those, O oh God, that he ministered with. I thank you for the great impact has had on my life all these years. Holy Spirit, grant us, grant the church the same mind, the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. Let us do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, let us count others more significant than ourselves. Cause us, O oh God, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Grant us the mind of Christ Jesus. This we pray, O oh Lord, this we pray in the mighty name of King Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our brother. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing together, God, the uncreated one.
to be able to worship with you even though we're not together in one place to know that our hearts are being taught by God's grace and his word that we get to respond in unison in song and lift up our hearts together in prayer and I pray that this week we will be endeavoring to be holy as our father is holy we would ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in uh, conforming our lives to the passion of living for our Heavenly Father, that we would have hearts shaped after His. May we lean upon the Holy Spirit to help us as we seek to have His holiness displayed in our life. As you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and as we share the good news in the world until we meet again next week. God bless.